Welcome to the Speaks Exchange podcast with your host, Donald Taylor. As a renowned learning and development industry expert, as well as chairman of the Learning and Performance Institute, Donald sits down with experts from around the globe to talk business communication, learning technology, language, digital transformation, and engaging, upskilling, and reskilling your organization. This podcast is brought to you by Speaks, the first intelligent language learning platform for the digital workplace. Listen in and you might learn a thing or two. Welcome to this edition of the Speaks Exchange podcast with me, your host, Donald Taylor. And with me today, I have Etiel Draw. I was about to launch into an introduction to Etiel, but he's such a multifaceted man. It's probably better he does it himself. Etiel, welcome. Great to have you on the show. Can you introduce yourself? Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. But you know, most people, when you ask them the three most basic <laughs> questions, what's your name, where are you from, and what do you do? Each one of them is a very complicated answer with me. So the three simple <laughs> questions are not as simple. So maybe I just focus uh, not on my name and where I'm from, but what I do, which is complicated enough. Now, People who don't understand and look at my webpage will see that I work in many, many different domains all over the place. But actually, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist. I'm interested in how the brain encodes and processes information. And this has a lot of manifestations and application of learning, how to train people, how to improve decision-making, how to maximize efficiency of skill acquisition. So a variety of questions in L&D, but not in L&D, but in many other domains. And of course, a theoretical, I'm a researcher. My day job is doing research in cognitive neuroscience about the human brain and how to measure and improve performance. So the topic is huge. And even though I have one running theme, it's like, you know, a, a tree that has many branches, but it all comes from an understanding and insight into the human mind and to cognitive processing. That's great. Thank you. And you say you do research. Can you quickly just give us the names of some of the institutions with which you have done research in the past? Oh, that's a- Well, again, my CV is 67 pages just to read it to you, but really trying to simplify. And I feel today, I feel a bit bad when I do this kind of podcast because you ask already before we started, really complicated, deep question. It's like a journalist on TV, they interview you and they say you have 20 seconds on the news to summarize a huge domain. So in terms of institution, then uh, I began in the United States at uh, Harvard University where I got my PhD, and now I'm at uh, UCL, University College London. Between them, there's a few other places. Fantastic. Thank you, Itya. I'll try to make the rest of the questions simpler, but I suspect that you will find complexity in every question that I ask you. You you have been influential, I think, possibly more than you know, in learning and development, looking at neuroscience, looking at the mind and cognition and considering how science can inform what we do. Do you think, from your knowledge, and you've spoken at events that I've chaired a couple of times, do you think, from your understanding of what L&D is doing, that we are doing a good job of taking research and knowledge from your domain into the practice of workplace learning and development? Well, uh, thank you very much for your uh, kind words about me being influential. And I feel ambivalent about it because on the one hand, the fact that many people in L&D are thinking about the mind, they're not only thinking about the mind, 
but thinking about the learner, the title of one of my papers, it's not what you teach, but what they learn that counts. So start to think not if my learning material or whatever I'm doing, how good it is. It's got no importance. The question is how the learner, if the learner, how the learner. So transforming the thought from the learning material to the learner, you know, is great and interest in the brain and the mind and uh, brain-friendly learning and all those kind of things is great and I feel great about it and I'm very happy about it and great for L&D for taking it on. On the other hand, I feel a bit bad about it because some people think that if they read a few dozen books and articles, they understand the brain where they actually don't and they not only don't advance L&D, they even take it backwards because they misinterpret. They say what they want to say, but underpin it in support supposed brain sciences and that mm. is not as bad as what other people are doing where they take an old book and put it in a new cover so they're repackaging what they said before but now they say one or two things about the brain and don't really driven by deep understanding of the brain so overall i'm very happy i encourage it but i do want to put a word of caution that when somebody says oh this is brain friendly learning you need to look, really, do they understand the brain? Are they really making connection? Or they're just saying one or two facts they read in a few books about the brain? And they go back to say things that you heard a hundred times before, or they said before. So they're not really influenced in a deep way. So I think it's great we've taken two steps forward, but one step back. It's a bit of a metacognitive question, if you like, but talking about how we think about thinking, or possibly even how we think about how we think about thinking, do you think that we are simply unconsciously incompetent, if you like, that we have a little knowledge and that's a dangerous thing? And if that is the case, what can we do about it? And that's true for everybody. Uh, neuro, as a, a prefix tagged onto anything, is tremendously hot at the moment. Neuro games, neuro learning, whatever. How can we ourselves in learning development as practitioners, look at stuff that's presented to us and be not sceptical in a negative way, but realistic about its provenance and its trustworthiness. What can we do, Etienne? And first of all, I agree with you that sometimes a little knowledge is dangerous, but with all due respect to L&D, it's not a big danger because they work with pilots, with police officers, with medical doctors. So we're talking about life and death situation. And L&D... The danger is you'll have another boring e-learning module that nobody wants to do, nobody learns uh, very much. It's a danger, and, but I just want to put a perspective. We're not talking about life uh, and death or sending innocent people to jail, et cetera, et cetera. I think that I don't expect, advise any L&D person to start studying the brain and getting a PhD and doing a postdoc and studying for 15 years to realize that they know very little. But I think it's not a matter of learning small details about the brain and mentioning mm -hmm. them, but it's an approach. For example, what I mentioned before, to think about the learner and not to think about the learning materials. Remember that the learning is objective rather than the learning material. Or other messages that I emphasize, it's not only about acquiring a skill or knowledge that you test at the end of the learning and give everyone a certificate, but start to think, do they remember it? And does it impact behavior? Does it change back at the workplace? Does it have an impact that you want to? 
So those aspects of memory impacting behavior, changing decision-making or whatever you're trying to teach, starting to think about those issues, I think is a huge step that L&D can do and has done. And you say they do it more than I even know. So that's even better. So I do talk to a lot of people and they say to me, I heard you speak, you know, two years ago. And now every time I think, are the learners going to remember it? What can I do? Not only that they will acquire it, but they remember it and actually use it. And yeah. that it, uh, so these are a few things that is a change in approach without getting into some technical issues about the brain or reading about the brain, but picking the cherries and improving the approach and enhancing it within the existing paradigms of L&D. So, and I, I agree that we spend far too much time thinking about how materials look and possibly even whether people can be tested on stuff rather than considering why are we doing this? And indeed, what impact does this have with this person back in the workplace? Let's take an example. You mentioned pilots earlier. I know you've done work with pilots in the US. We're used to seeing posters on walls that show uh, planes in profile. This is what a, I don't know, a US plane looks like. This is what a Russian plane looks like. I've always wondered, are those things any use at all? Because when you're a pilot in combat, you have a split second to make a decision. And that's what you were dealing with these US pilots and helping them make better decisions about identifying planes. Can you tell us through, talk us through what did you do and what influenced your approach to helping them make better decisions? I'm uh, happy to do that. But before I talk about pilots, I don't want viewers to say, what do I care about pilots? It's the same cognitive principles and approach whether you're doing health and safety, uh, diversity training, all this training and all these posters that are basically a waste of time that we spend a lot of time developing and people spend so much time going through, we really don't make an impact. I was assuming that the bridge between getting pilots to make better decisions to uh, the workplace was was clear, but obviously it's, 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 it, it may not be clear at all. So thank you for making that bridge for us. But okay, so it's okay. one example of a general principle. Yeah, what do you the do? General, okay, so the general principle, um, and again, I want to go a bit slowly so people follow some of the science, and I hope I'm not making anyone fall asleep uh, too, too quickly. Uh, very unlikely, very unlikely. Oh, okay, thank you. So the question is, why do we need to improve people's behavior? Why do we need to think of how to make it efficient? Why not just giving the learning material? Now, the learner <clears throat> has a huge cognitive load, and we as professionals in L&D want to reduce the load. We need to do the work rather than throwing it on the learning. Here's the learning material, and it's not my problem. I presented it, and they need to learn it. It is up to us and understanding the issue of cognitive load. Now, many people know about cognitive load. They may not think about it enough, but if you go to the detail and understand, you know, cerebral cellular metabolism, you go to the neurophysiology of the brain, how much your brain can actually carry on. So we need to see how much your brain can carry on. And please don't give me, oh, we can do seven items minus one plus two because different items can weigh very differently from the brain. It's not how many kilograms weight you can put on a truck. It's a cognitive load, something that may seem very heavy, may seem to the brain not heavy. Other things that may seem very simple require a lot of brain energy. And also it depends what part of the brains you're going to involve, because some parts of the brain can carry different loads and different representation. So there's a whole big question of how much. This is what I talk about, the 
quantitative issues of how much you can load on the brain. Now, beyond the quantitative issue that we always have to remember that the brain has limited energy, the limitation how much your brain can take on and learn and memorize and use, that I move from the quantitative to the qualitative approach. A qualitative approach is how you load it, because you can load a lot if you know how to load it by taking the burden off the learners. And now we're getting to the pilot with this background. So if you want pilots to learn to identify different aircraft, instead of what they used to do is show them the aircraft and they see it again and again and again, and they need to learn to identify it. We started to investigate from a cognitive perspective what happens to the pilots when they learn to identify the aircraft. So the people who are listening to the podcast, if you've ever met twins, the first time the twins look very differently and you saw them again and again and again. And over time, you learned that one is John and one is David. Something caused you not to identify them. Before them, they looked the same. What happened in that cognitive process, in many learning processes? So with the twins and with the aircraft, what happens, the brain, and it's unconscious, we're not even conscious of that, the brain picks up on unique features of each aircraft, on unique features of each of the twins. Maybe one twin, the eyes are a bit more elliptic or more round, or the nose, the nostrils is a bit bigger. You know, small differences, and that's a unique feature. And the same with aircraft. So for example, they pick up a certain feature on a certain aircraft as a unique feature, and it takes a lot of time for the brain to pick that up and to encode it. So what we do, we take that burden off the learner, and when we present the learning material, we exaggerate what needs to be learned. So in the aircraft, we morph, we exaggerate a certain feature of the aircraft, so the mental representation acquiring the information is easier for the learner and is maintained better for the long term. So if you're training in any new thing, you know, new health and safety regulation, new accounting regulation, or whatever, you give all this learning material, and I sit with the expert domains to say, what do they need to learn? They say they need to learn this. No, they don't need to learn this. It's usually a more critical piece of information from all what you're giving them in the slide or in 10 slides is two or three critical pieces of information. And you need to know what they are, the people who do the L&D. And then don't present it to the learners between all the junk that you give them the thing that they really need to learn, and you need to give the junk in the context for a variety of reasons, but emphasize it, make it bold, make it italics, make it a bigger font, even things simple like that. You don't have to go to complex morphing algorithms or what we did with the Air Force. So when the learner sees a slide or even a PowerPoint presentation or a table, the actual important things jump out. You, you've done the work, you know what's important, you highlight it, and then they learn faster, remember it better, and it's much more efficient, and then you can load more information because you've reduced the load from the learner. You gave it to them ready-made, actually brain-friendly. So to summarize, you can look at two twins and they can appear identical over time. You come to unconsciously, the brain naturally finds a way to differentiate them. The same is true, but it's going to be more effective if you get your people to learn the stuff that you know eventually they will focus on. Maybe the MiG-27 air intake is larger and in a slightly different position than it is on an, an American F-16. And that's crucial for a, a fighter pilot to know. Now that's something which is evolving 
split second decision making, but it's something you might make a decision on a number of times. Let's hope not, but presumably you you've got a fighter pilot flying, they may see another aircraft and he or she may decide, well, I need to make a decision about what that aircraft is now. And that might happen, I don't know, once a week, once a month, whatever. But there are other times when you want somebody to learn something and it's a just in case. They may never need this in their entire life or they might need it once. How do you make that so vivid for people that they are not, in your words, overwhelmed with all the rubbish around it, but that salient thing they have to know sticks with them and then when they're in a similar position in the future they know yes this is the thing i need to do whether it's i don't know saving a life or instigating a procedure or, or, or whatever you're asking the most complicated learning right you're talking about learn now for something that you're not going to use for a long time but yep. when it happens you it's need really to remember important. and it's really yes. important so it's not yes. something you usually do and you go to the job and you screw it up once or twice and you learn and to get it to do it better and better over time you cannot yes. afford to make a mistake and, and a classic example will be in the medical domain when we trade uh, doctors for a pediatric cardiac arrest when a child had a heart attack so a doctor may never see it or may see it you know in 10 20 years but then it's very important that they know what to do when the child gets a heart attack. So to do that, we need to create real salient mental representations, which means we want to do something during the training that it will really be carved, ingrained into the brain. So when it happens, you can retrieve it. And again, it can be 20 years from now, and it can be a very emotional, stress, time pressure situation if you want to add uh, to it. And what you need to do is to give memorable experience during training. You know, you always want to give a memorable experience, an emotional experience, an involved experience. But here, you need to go the extra step because you know they're not going to get any reinforcements. They may not use it for a long time. They, we can't afford for them to make a mistake. And then you want to do something a bit more than the normal. I have a technique called the terror of error, and you can use other techniques. Basically, you want to give them a very strong experience during the training. Emotional, uh, I don't want to say traumatic, but something that would really knock them off their chair, something that they're going to remember this event. And one of the things that the brain remembers really, really well is mistakes. When we make mistakes, when we make errors, we really remember them well. And that's generally true in training that we learn more from mistakes than when we get it right, then it's good to try during training, again, depending on the application and depending on a lot of factors, to cause the learners to experience a mistake that they make and then correct it. But experience of a mistake and then hitting the metal when it's hot. So don't wait a year later to say, but they understand the mistake, and then they learn how not to make the mistake and then they practice correct, but start off by what I call sabotage. Set them up to make a mistake and then they're not only going to remember it, they're going to be motivated for the learning. They know they need to learn, they understand the importance, they know that they can't do it. So it's a metacognitive insight because people believe they can do things which they can't and then you teach them how to do it. So they had a real good 
emotional experience, motivating, engaging experience. And in the end of the learning, they don't say, oh, what a waste of time. They feel they learned something because in the beginning they did it wrong and now they did it correctly. But in terms of your question, you gave them an emotional, strong experience that they will remember and modify their behavior, the power of error, the terror of error, the power of mistakes, where we engage it and we set them up to make mistakes and learn from that. So just for an example, I just want to translate it from, you know, some pediatric cardiac arrest to every day when you train people to work on an EPOS, electronic point of sale, it's cashier. So they work in a big store and you train people how to do the cashier. And you also train them how to avoid and how to learn fake banknotes. Mm. Instead of showing them and how to do it and they're falling asleep, let them accept a fake banknote. And after they accept it, they say, hey, bring it back to me. And it can be on an interactive video. It can be online or whatever uh, means to do it. And then you say, oh, look, this note is fake and you accepted it. I said, oh my God, you know, you don't want to make them feel stupid, but you want them to get a bit of, oh, I made a mistake. Look, now I can see obviously this, you know, $100 bill or 50 euro or 20 pounds, whatever the bill is, it's fake. I should have seen it. Why didn't I see it? And here we train them how to notice it. There, they're going to pay attention to notes more. They're going to detect more. So you want them to experience things. And again, to give them a salient mental representation and a whole bunch of other things. Experience the failure and the correction of the failure immediately afterwards. Yes, and the failure that happens at the workplace is random. You may have a failure or a situation that really is not important. When you do the training, you can cause the failure or the situation that likely going to lead to failure, the ones that are important educationally that are going to happen in the workplace. So for example, with medical surgeon, orthopedic uh, surgeon, we developed training. The first thing we did, we bring 50 orthopedic surgeons from 13 countries and asked them, what are the typical mistakes that happen in traumatic orthopedic surgery? When you try to train new doctors, you do a lot of effort and they still make mistakes. And everyone came with a list. There was some variation, but there were seven or eight mistakes that they all had and high on the list that are typical mistakes that happen during orthopedic surgery, which we find very hard to train new surgeons. And then we focused the interactive training we developed, which caused surgeons to make mistakes and learn from the mistakes on those mistakes. So during training, you can pick the mistakes that are more educational, more important, and whatever your criteria, rather the random things they're going to encounter at the workplace. The message that is very sad or difficult here to do proper L&D is damn difficult. You don't just take turning materials throw on the learners. You have to really understand what they need, the environment they're going to work, what mistakes, what are the consequences, when they're going to use it, and a whole range of questions. That's when I sit with L&D people, I give them a headache. Before that, they said, here's the learning material. How can I make it better? And I asked them a million questions about the learning, about the learners, about their use, what they need. And you have to go one layer deeper, two layers deeper, and then 
you can really do fascinating L&D and not a normal run-of-the-mill L&D that is out there, unfortunately. We're shifting from providing people with information to focusing on the behaviors we want to change and setting things up. I wouldn't, so, say, I wouldn't say provide them, dumping on them, just throwing them endless information, not even giving it in a nice way, just throwing at their face and saying it's your problem and I taught them and that's it. That's what happens. It is what happens and it's better to focus on the behavior we want to change work back from how people learn and make a situation of one form or another to provide that learning. Now, here's the question. Um, if you are, you, you mentioned doing a simulate, not doing some learning online, and that's, you do a lot of that. You could have a live class doing something, but how much is it important to simulate the workplace? I'm thinking about the surgeons and the, and the medical people you've dealt with. How important is it, to, and it could be anybody else as well, but how important is it to simulate the workplace so that what people are learning becomes more ingrained rather than it being seen as something which is somehow different to and separate from the workplace. It's something you do in the training room rather than something that actually applies to me when I get to work. How important is it to simulate in some? First of all, there's a big question. What do you mean by simulate? Because in the medical domain, we have mm -hmm. simulations that you know cost hundreds of thousands of mannequin or a simulation where they learn how to put an IV and you take an orange and they need to learn how to put the needles through the peel of the orange. It's also a simulation of the skin. But the question is on two issues, transfer and generalize. One is how do we ensure that the learning transfers from the learning environment to the actual uh, workplace and the application. So it needs to transfer. And mm -hmm. not only it needs to transfer, it needs to generalize. So you can generalize from the learning to many situations. You haven't learned one thing and you do that one thing at the workplace, but you can generalize it to similar circumstances where you can apply the learning to a wide range. Now to generalize and transfer, again, it's a very complicated issue and depending how the brain encodes the information, but I would say that the more similar the learning is to the context of usage, the better you get the transfer. So it can be simulations, but not necessarily simulations. But for example, right now there's COVID around. So I'll give an example. If you're learning to do a certain procedure and when you're doing it, you're going to have a mask on and you're going to have gloves on. Doing training when you're learning to do it on a mannequin, in theory, you don't need the mask and the gloves on, but it's important that you put the gloves on and that you put the mask on. The more similar the context is, and the surrounding of the learning environment to the application. Are you standing up or sitting down? That makes a huge difference and so on and so forth. So the more you can make the learning environment similar to the environment where you want them to use, to retrieve and use the information, generally speaking, the better it is. I was being loose with my language. I should have said, how similar does the context have to be? rather than using the word simulation, which opened up a, a can of worms. And of course, yes, if people are putting on their masks and all of that protective gear, annoying though it is, that is going to help people recall and use 
what they've learned. By the way, if you ever do give blood or you ever have to have an injection, it's always best, I've discovered, to get the nurse to do it rather than the doctor. The nurse is someone who has generally stuck a lot of needles into people and knows how to do it. The doctor, unfortunately, is still thinking about the orange and the needle and hasn't generalized the learning. Abs absolutely. And also, while the nurse is putting the needle in your hand, don't talk to them and distract them and talk about uh, the politics or the weather or whatever. Let them do their job and focus. And more important, when they give you medication in the ward, because if they stick a needle and don't stick it well and they stick you four times, you may have a bit of pain and bruising. But if they give you the wrong medication, you may find yourself in a very bad situation. So don't distract uh, people when they're trying to help you, let them do their job. <laughs> That's a sound, a sound piece of advice. And speaking but you of advice, but, but, but you yes. see how it all connects. It's all about cognitive load, people doing stuff, by understanding what the brain does when you're learning or whether you're giving medication to enable the brain to focus on what it needs to do because it has limited capacity. And accepting that in ourselves. When I'm coming to a town and I'm driving, I'll always turn the radio off. And if I'm talking to somebody in the car, I'll say, I need you to be quiet now because I need to read these signs. And I've discovered that I can't, and it's a very basic thing, I can't read signs and navigate and talk to somebody or even listen to the radio at the same time. I will fail to take in the information I need. Convert that to learning on the most trivial level, again, <clears throat> You see in the training, I see many training that I uh, evaluate, there is a lack of cognitive consistency. For example, when you move to the next slide, sometimes you click on the top right, sometimes you click on the bottom left. Now it's trivial, people find it, but you're spending the learning cognitive resources <clears throat> on figuring out the technical stuff of how to navigate the learning the capacity to learn is diminished. They don't spend the cognitive brain power into learning and there's yeah. a lack of cognitive consistency at the same time. Sometimes text is read, sometimes it's not read. It's just so confusing. Now, people say it's not so confusing. I figure it out, but this energy that you use to figure out is not going to learning, acquiring, and memorizing. It's exactly and I tell you what, I do a lot of work helping people with webinars. So it's not learning, it's simply putting people in information in front of people on slides. Well, they may learn, they may not, but it, the, the purpose is more broadcasting than learning. Nonetheless, the principle is the same. I always say to people, don't force the participant to interpret. So I call it the, the road sign principle. You've got to be able to look at it and get it immediately. And if you can't get it immediately, there is something wrong with what you're designing. You need to, people need to be able to not spend their energy, as you say, interpreting it, because when that happens, they've lost the thread very often. You're about to say something. You're absolutely right. And it gets, and now that because you and I, at least, I don't know about the uh, listening, because we're on the same page, we can take it to the next level of complexity. So you're absolutely right. It's the same message of taking the burden off the learners and you as a professional doing the work, what needs to be learned, what needs to be interpreted, and give it to them in a way they can take it on board with minimal spending brain calories on figuring out how to navigate or what do you mean or to make sense of what you say. Having said that, what about the concept of desirable difficulty where if you, if you work hard for something, you are more likely to remember. That's exactly what I'm going to say in a different uh, way. <laughs> where you don't want them to be passive, you want to challenge them. Right. So you want the training to be challenging, but not challenging, where the hell do I press to go to the next slide, or what do they mean here and I need to interpret it, but 
cognitively challenging the brain and engaging the brain. So they have challenges, they have clear advances, they get feedback as they're moving along. So the training is challenging and engaging, but not about the things, but about the learning. So it's what the challenges are causes the brain to learn the material better and encode it better. So it's a fine line how to do it correctly, and that's where you need the cognitive input. The content should be challenging and engaging, but the medium should not be, let's put it that way. Um, and and if, I, I agree with that, and I would add the challenges in the content and perhaps application. Uh-huh, right. Something like that and give them example and they have to generalize and they have to do something with it and take it to the next step. So there are many ways you can do challenges, but definitely not on the technical stuff. And you um, know, and I know that all these IT systems and learning management system, most of the time we spend ticking stupid boxes, which how many pages, how many ticks, how many is this you have to get. Before you get, by the time I start the learning, I'm depressed, I'm frustrated, I'm tired, we're all stressed in life, and I'm already in a bad, pissing mood. I'm not in an engaging, enthusiastic mood to learn. I've already gone through hell to get to the first slide. These things we need to deal with are important for the learning. What we're doing in this conversation, Etiel, is trying to boil down, let's, let's say, two or three decades of experience, knowledge, understanding, and application of cognitive neuroscience boil it down into 20 to 30 minutes of podcast insight. That's a tough challenge, obviously. If you had one piece of advice, because let's wrap up with this question. If you had one piece of advice to give to anybody in learning and development about the whole field of cognitive neuroscience, what would that be? I hate doing it, but I will. (laughs) I would say one message. Don't forget the learner. Don't spend so much time on the learning material and the technology. Keep your eye on the ball. The technology and the content and everything are not a goal. They're an instrument. They're a means mm-hmm. to get the learner to learn something and memorize, remember it and use it. So in one line, don't forget the learner. Put it, you know, every morning, that's what you need to say or what you need to have, you know, on your screen as you develop learning or every five minutes when you get too engaged in the stupid stuff or the silly stuff, don't forget the learning. Everything you need to do, think about the learner, not about the learning materials, not about the technology, not about yourself, but about the learner. It's about the learner. And of course, the learner is the learner's brain, but don't forget about the learner. They get lost too often in L&D. It's the learner's brain. It's also the learning process, as you say, what's happening in the brain. And it's also, as we've discussed uh, at length, the context in which the learner finds themselves, because that will affect how they're able to learn and how they're able to recall and how they're able to apply. Later By on. the way, uh, you said, you know, we're summarizing like decades of knowledge and experience. If people are interested, I can send you, I don't know if you'll be able to show them, but I have a link and a resource page with a lot of articles and information about learning. And if you can't find the link or Don Taylor didn't put it in a brain-friendly salient location, <laughs> then you can just Google my webpage under training and brain-friendly. And there's a lot of information for people who are interested. Etiel, we will put that link. You send me that link. We're going to put that link in the show notes and people can click on it and it will be it will be absolutely in a totally brain-friendly link that people can click on and get straight there. We don't and I do the, recommend doing that. Yeah, we don't I've read want plenty the, of Vigil stuff. 
Yeah, as I like to say, we don't want the shoemaker to be barefoot, so we better do no, it exactly. properly. Exactly. One last thing, Itchel, I always ask the question, uh, what are you curious about right now in your field? I'm curious about many things, but you know, curiosity kills the cat, so we have to be careful. <laughs> but my curiosity has not changed. It's the human mind, understanding the human mind, and even though I emphasize that I translate a lot of my understanding and insights about the human brain and cognitive processing into L&D in the applied world, by translating it, by working in the real world, I learn, I go back and do more research. I get a lot of insight. It's a two-directional learning experience, applying theory. It fits the theory and the curiosity have not changed since the beginning. It's the same basic wanting to understand the human mind. What makes us tick and how can we improve our learning and performance? Fantastic. And how great to have that salient curiosity there in front, front of your mind uh, throughout your career and I hope for many decades to come to it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.